Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. We are wrapping up a four-part series on artificial intelligence and what it means for future humans, future us. And joining me is Adam Bristol. Hey, Andre, it's good to be here again. So Adam, you're going to take us home in this series. And uh, we decided to feature a science fiction writer as kind of the last look forward into what might happen 100 years in the future if AI continues to improve and dominate as it has so far. Yeah, and this was an extraordinary debut novel from a San Francisco-based author named Gary Benger. Uh, the book is called Unfettered Journey. And I'll tell you, it's one of my favorite science fiction novel of 2020. Wow, that's high praise. Well, you know, I love science fiction. I, I read a lot of science fiction, but I think you know me. And I don't love fantasy. Remember when we got the uh, George R.R. R. Martin books were gifted to me? And I don't think I read two pages in it. It's just not my thing. I know. We got the first Game of Thrones book. And um, I remember this very clearly because it was given to us by a friend of ours. And you didn't even, like, try to read it. And I was like, what? He gave it to us. And he thought that this was such a great book that, like, one of us has to read it. And I was hooked. Yeah. I, actually, I feel real bad about that because our friend is a scientist. He's, an, he's, a, he's, a, he's a practicing scientist. He's a tremendous guy. And he gave me this book. And he gave it high praise, and yet I just, I judged it by its cover. I don't like orcs and elves and wizards and magic. For some reason, that's just not my bag. What I like in terms of science fiction is more what is known as hard science fiction. So it has a real, uh, if not scientific accuracy in the technical details, there's a real plausibility to it. And I feel that, for some reason, that internal coherency really makes for me a really interesting novel. And of course, then science fiction always is the uh, context in which we can explore a lot of different aspects of the human condition. So less dire wolves, dragons, and night walkers, and more AI. Right. And so this book called Unfettered Journey, it is takes place in the, say, near future, meaning roughly 100 years from now. And it the main protagonist is an AI researcher 
who is interested in some more philosophical aspects of artificial intelligence, in particular, sentient consciousness, uh, causal attribution, and a lot of what have, you know, for, for philosophers and psychologists have been vexing parts of just human cognition. And what I love about this book are, are several fold. One is that it is set in the not so distant future, but it is ultimately a very hopeful story without giving way to the, the real issues that humankind is dealing with right now, changing global warming, uh, the social, political, and agricultural implications of that. Those are all part of the book, but ultimately it's a very optimistic view of the future. I've said this on the podcast numerous times. I am a techno-optimist. I truly am. And I think this book really has a, a very plausible, but yet optimistic look of the future. And then of course, it's a really good read. It's actually a love story. It's a love story. And then I guess the third thing I really loved about it was if I turn my lens historical, you know that we have a copy of uh, one of the original Whole Earth catalogs. We have Kevin Kelly's Cool Tools. There's this ethos of the early days of Silicon Valley of a kind of uh, reaching ahead in terms of new technologies, but also reaching back to not lose uh, ingenuity and low tech, but very efficient and and uh, innovative tech of the past, be them simple architectural skills, agricultural skills, things of that sort. And there's an aspect of the book where historical technologies, low tech, if you will, merge with high tech in a way that for me was a bit like sci-fi meets Walden Pond uh, from mm. Thoreau. And I, I just thought it was a, a fantastic book. And Gary turns out to be just an incredibly interesting person. And so I was just thrilled to have a conversation with him. And I hope he follows it up with another novel in the future. Gary Benger, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you. And it's a delight to be here, Adam, and uh, to share my book, Unfettered Journey, with you and your audience. Well, as I was mentioning before we started recording, it really is one of my favorite sci-fi opuses that I've read in the last five to 10 years because you've crafted an incredible world that weaves together philosophical explorations with a great love story and a, and a lot of action to boot. And so I just found it to be a really extraordinary work. You know, maybe just start with, let's set the stage. The year in the book is 2161. And the main character, our protagonist, our hero, is Joe Denkinsmith. He's an AI researcher. He seems to me that he works for something that might be like a DARPA of the future. And he's, he's experiencing a bit of an existential crisis that compels him to action. Talk about Joe and what is he dealing with and what motivates him to act. Right. Okay. Well, Joe is an AI scientist, and his job at the AI ministry uh, is to create true robot consciousness. Now, it's 140 years in the future, and robots are walking around among us. And, you know, the general conventional wisdom then is this that they are sort of conscious. They seem that way. But uh, actually, Joe knows the real secret. Uh, that's just a fiction. It's sort of uh, cheap tricks all the way down. We haven't really created true robot consciousness. And so Joe is in the midst of trying to do that. He asks the question, what is his own consciousness? You know, what is that I that's the center of you, Adam, and, and all of us? What is that thing? 
And why why is that so important? Because if you just take a step back, we're starting today in 2021 to benefit from some of the advancements in AI and machine learning. We've got uh, assistive um, uh, voice assistants. We've got uh, self-driving cars in the sort of the beginning days. And so we're seeing things that are working well in some of these niche applications that seem pretty quote unquote smart. But why why would an AI researcher really want to get to this this core kernel of that there's there's consciousness there there's an eye inside that that AI. <laughs> well, well, let me answer it in two parts. The, the first is it's, it was actually my question. Uh, you know, after a career in 30 years in Silicon Valley and high tech, I I went back to passion projects and I went back to school and uh, I backfilled an astrophysics undergraduate degree and then I backfilled a uh, a, a philosophy undergraduate degree. And then I got a master's in philosophy uh, focused on philosophy of mind and, and, you know, what is the mind? And, uh, and so I was thinking about these issues for over a decade. And then after that, I've been thinking about how to, you know, what the real answer is to that and, and then how to um, bring these ideas out into the world. So those were impetus behind the book. And I, uh, what I wanted to do is to, provide a hard science view of the future. Um, I think that too much of the future that we uh, envision through popular culture is just wrong and it's misleading and it uh, does a bad job of helping us actually prepare to create the future that we really want to have. So, so um, you know, let's just take one of the main threads running through the through the book, um, AI and robotics, and what will that mean for us in this next decade and in this next century? Okay, um, so I, I believe that this next century will be driven by two main technological uh, advances. The first is uh, bioscience, and the second is AI and robotics. And so my book focuses on the second. And um, I think that. Our ideas of AI and robotics are driven by, you know, um, the Terminator, right? <laughs> Suddenly, all the robots are go going to become intelligent. And they're going to kill us. <laughs> or, or we have these uh, visions of, you know, we're all going to be cyborgs and we're going to upload our brains into some computer. And, uh, you know, if you take a hard science view, I think all that stuff is nonsense. Um, the reality, I firmly believe, is much more prosaic, uh, but also very interesting. And, um, you know... Um, so the question is, how do those robots really develop those AIs? And, um, you know, I think that, quite honestly, rather than killing us, um, they'll be more annoying <laughs> than anything else <laughs> because it's going to be hard to get them right. It's going, to it's going to be very hard to get the robots to do things that recognize us as humans and that interact in, in ways with us that are useful to us. So that's that's sort of a basis behind this, and so um, so I think by exploring the idea, of, uh, among others, of what is human consciousness, what is consciousness, and then can that be created in a robot, is an important topic to raise for all of us. And and let's think about it more sensibly than um, it has been done uh, in the popular culture. Right, and 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 one thing that I really appreciated about the book because I do read a lot of science fiction and as you suggested a lot of it whether it deals with AI or not is somehow a, you know post-apocalyptic you know the future is going to be worse than the present I mean there are a lot of issues that we as a human society need to deal with but what I really liked about your book is that 
it's optimistic at its core. The ethos is one in which the future, there'll be bumps in the road, there'll be things that, that human civilization will have to deal with, but it seems like it's an optimistic future that things can get better. And that's, that's separate to the AI questions that Joe and his colleagues uh, are, are, are chasing down. But this, again, what undergirds the story, in my opinion, is a sense of kind of future optimism. Is, is that fair? I think it's right. Yes. And um, and I, I, I said that there are these two main uh, technological changes that I think drive the questions for this next century. And they are going to be very challenging, uh, genetics and then AI and robotics. And um, and I think we can see the other side of, you know, a century, a century and a half from now. I think we can see where the endpoint is highly likely to be. But, um, but you know, it's the world is nonlinear. It's a complex adaptive system. I'm, I'm on the board of the Santa Fe Institute and, you know, um, and been deeply enmeshed in those and the mathematics of that and what that means. And that means that there are lots of bad things that c- could happen between now and then. And so I think it's very important that we focus on what the right issues are. And I think that we can then guide that. So uh, to avoid some of the um, um, least pleasant possibilities. But if we start to see what that looks like, then we can imagine how to get there. And that's really important to, to the book. That's, again, the hard science driving the book. One part of the story, which is an important thread that runs throughout it, is social justice. And social justice that is an issue in the book brought upon by economic upheaval. So you have, this is a society in the future, which I would call almost post-work, right? That is because there's such an abundance and, and such an integration of robotic and AI assistive technologies in life that people either don't need to work or are severely actually restricted in their ability to do work. And when that happens, however, you get major upheavals in modern economics, and I'd love you to chat about that. But I I have a follow-on question for you, which is closer to this notion of will things get better in the future and how that future society was able to, and our society today is able to overcome some of these issues. So let's talk with, what is the future economics that you see look like in 2161? Again, I'm going to say that I'm a little bit conservative because um, there are some uh, folks who think that robots will be here tomorrow. You know, they look at the Boston Dynamics uh, robot dog and it and it seems like it's going to happen. Right. Um, there there. There are uh, global uh, consulting companies who've predicted by 2050, we're going to have 70% of the jobs will be automated. Uh, So uh, I don't believe that stuff, actually. I think that the development of robots walking around would be more like the automobile. You know, Henry Ford invented the Model T in 1910, but it really took a century to get the car to the way it is today. So, you know, you have to develop windshield washer wipers and electronic systems, road infrastructure. You have to develop uh, the legal infrastructure to deal with what happens when people get injured. Um, all that takes time. Uh, and so I think, you know, the, the, the sensors on the robots will get better. We'll make them lighter. We'll have better, um, um, less uh, weighty power packs, all that sort of thing. And they'll get better and better and better, but it'll take a while. So but I think the engineering problem is sort of an A to Z problem. We can see the steps. And so I suggest that it is inevitable that we will have them walking around, you know, and they'll probably be about our size because uh, we've engineered trillions of dollars of infrastructure that fits humans. 
I, I was at a conference with, uh, at the Santa Fe Institute just over un, under two years ago called AI and the Barrier of Meaning. And in that work, workshop were people like Rodney Brooks, who invented the Roomba, <laughs> and, and a bunch of leading scientists. And they were actually pretty negative as a group, I was surprised, negative about uh, developing you know, more conscious um, AIs, because uh, it's such a hard problem. Um, but there was one presenter who talked about jobs going away. And he, he described the job landscape as a topology with hills and valleys. And, you know, the water level rising is the analog of jobs going away. And so, you know, what, what hills does and valleys does the water level rise first and cover and what's at the top? Well, you know, maybe at the top are jobs like yours, Adam, you know, um, giving interviews. And, and, uh, and uh, so I would suggest that at the top of the hills are, are jobs like the roofer, right? Because <laughs> it's really hard to climb up on the roof with a bunch of shingles and nailman place, you know, and, 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 you know, at some point roofers will be making hundreds of thousands of dollars and then they'll automate that one too. And when that happens, it's sort of all over, right? Uh, because all of those jobs that are done by walking around, all that kind of stuff will be done by a robot. Now, now, so I'm suggesting that this is inevitable. And when that happens, think what thinks what the world is like. Um, we have robots that are smelting the uh, mining the ores, they're smelting the steel, they're making the assembly plants. They're building the assembly of plants that build the robots. So when the robots build the robots, then the number of robots that we can have is just incredibly large uh, you know adam you could have 20 robots doing stuff for you but we may <laughs> and, have 20 precursors of robots even today or more yes 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 so so i think that so my argument is it will take a lot longer than people think that's why my book takes place 140 years in the future but that that endpoint is not just highly likely but almost inevitable and when that happens we'll have lots of stuff but we won't have any jobs like we have today so, I mean, I just run the financial models forward and take uh, U.S. and global GDP and just take our normal rates, which are actually pretty nice, between 1% and you know 4% 4 growth per year. And if you run them forward to 2161, you can get to the fact that people will have in the world, on average, 10 to 20 times as much stuff as we have today per person. Uh, and that's even without taking the multiplier of what robots making robots might allow. So there'll be a lot of stuff, but there won't be any jobs. And so I think that's the end game. And, and so what does that world really look like, which I argue is highly likely, okay? Um, that, that world's very different, right? Um, it's not a world where we'll need to fight about stuff. And in, in fact, it's, it's almost sort of silly to imagine dystopian worlds where that, you know, we'll have some trillionaires and everyone else is, um, you know, starving. Uh, that's just not a, um, uh, an, a symmetric, um, likely uh, mathematical point that we can arrive at. You know, you have a revolution. So, <laughs> so, so, here, so here's the conceit in my book that adds some conflict to it, is that uh, in the United States, because we have, uh, we are more of a uh, property rights society, that when that we finally come to that point, uh, in exchange for the uh, the means of production of the robots being nationalized, so everyone owns the robot factories, the oligarchs who used to own them, and giving that up, um, we've enacted a series of levels acts, and the levels acts create 
some levels from level one at the top to 99 at the bottom, and everyone is assigned a level, you know, and uh, the level supposedly lets you move up and down based upon merit. Uh, but, you know, the levels dictate certain things you can and can't do. You, some people can't vote and they, they can't hold certain jobs and they, they can't marry certain other folks that are more than 20 levels apart from them. And so that's, that's sort of the conceit of the book, that this level system is in place in the United States. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And it, it, it seemed to me that among all the aspects of life, of human existence, quality of life that seem to be getting better in the future, the one where we couldn't overcome for whatever hardwired evolutionary reasons that we need uh, uh, hierarchy or we need status, you have a caste system like Levels Act that basically shackles people in these social strata. And it seemed to me that the, the cool part of the book was that it was brought upon by some very realistic economic upheaval brought, by, brought on by the fact that labor, the value of labor, goes to near zero for most cases. And, and the owners of capital, you know, this is a very Thomas Piketty, you know, capital in the 21st century style argument that the owners of capital then start to really hold greater and greater sway and, of course, uh, procure the greater proportion of the gains over time in the economy. So that was the one piece where sort of future society didn't look more equitable, but rather looked like it was almost regressive in a way to way, you know, you could imagine caste systems or indentured servants in the past. Now, maybe I'm taking this a little bit further than your book did, but I was just trying to play around with these ideas in my head. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and but I don't, I don't suggest that there's a whole lot more stuff that some other class has, but they have more sort of power, if you will. Um, they have rank, they have prestige through the class, through the the level system, right? You know, as someone who studied brain science in my academic life, we often saw, if you look backwards over the last say 100, 120 years, that the metaphors for the mind and how the mind work tended to reflect 
kind of the top, you know, the, 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 the technological advancements of that time. So in the early days, it was thought to be like a telephone switchboard. Uh, or even going beyond that, it would have been some of the basic plumbing of humors, if you think going to Roman time and Rene Descartes. And of course, today we think of it as a computer. I'm thinking even uh, uh, connectionist theories were sort of early computer circuits. And of course, now we think of them as massively distributed, you know, kind of parallel processing. And again, so science fiction is often a reflection of the time it's written as much as is a projection into the future. And on that note... I do want to talk instead of just the ethos. Let's let's talk about some of the specific uh, uh, technologies that you describe in the book because they're all entirely realistic. They seem like they're they're threads that have been pulled from today. And I'd really love for you to speak on a few of those just to give people a sense of what your view of twenty one sixty one looks like because I, I found those to be entirely plausible and really fun to think about. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. I, I mentioned uh, earlier that I have this hard science view of the future because I want people to think about what it's really most likely to be like. And um, and and I'll, I'll preface getting into the details by saying that, you know, I don't think we will feel different as human beings in that future. It's not like this upload your brain crazy stuff. Again, it's not going to be like that. It's going to feel authentic to us. You know, if if you went back to the year 2000 um, and then, um, you know, thought about the world and then think that in 2007, the iPhone was invented and now people were walking around the streets, you know, talking to themselves, that would sound crazy. You know, it, it, was, it was actually crazy at the time when there was a sort of a social norm briefly against doing that, right? But now we forget about that. So it's very natural to do that. So let's just take these, let's just take these technologies and run them for you. I'll, I'll mention a few of them very quickly. Um, let me focus on the, the things that affect your body first. So I have something called a nest, a, a neural to external system transmitter. You know, it's a little chip that's inserted um, uh, into your, behind your uh, left ear. And um, it, it connects, sort of think of a future Bluetooth to a corneal transplant that's sort of like a little screen. And so the nest connects to the uh, to the cloud or the net or whatever it is, and and you know you can basically talk to it and um, and you know uh, where's the closest pizza joint and and it tells you right and uh, it can uh, download the little screen on the corner of your eye and there you can see it okay uh, so that's a nest um, you've got something called an armo an uh, augmented reality map overlay well that pizza joint um, actually can point a little red line. On basically a little map on the corner of your eye and you can just follow that and walk to the pizza joint you know um okay that is something that they're actually developing today um you know that's it and and you think about that uh, why does you know i'll pick on some folks why does google have google maps that's all over the place and why why would this tech uh, microsoft is developing that technology for uh use in factories today so that you can actually have sort of an interface in in a you know sort of a heads-up display um but imagine that you're walking down uh in uh the champs Elysees, right and you've got that on and uh, you turn on the, the little tourist thing and it starts talking to you in your head, you know, sort of feels like it's in your ear. And you're walking along and it says, oh, and here's this award winning, uh, you know, um, croissant shop, right? <laughs> and you go, oh, that looks pretty good. So you walk into it. Okay. And that's because you followed the map that you see in the corner of your eye. Okay. If you do that. When you walk into the shop, we can easily imagine that, you know, the company that sponsors that, they make, a, a you know, a euro for you walking in because they know that they sent you there and they know that you got there because of that and they pay for it. That's worth, you know, 
hundreds of billions of dollars, right? And today's thing. So they for sure will develop that, right? There, <laughs> there were some thing. early versions of AR apps that you could basically take your phone's camera kind of and, and given sort of the uh, location stamps, you could sort of look around and I think there were thought there'd be their little balloons or something, a little sign would pop up. So again, you can see the antecedents of that sort of idea, you know, occurring today. It's not fully, you know, baked and it's not really, but I, you, again, these, these threads are all completely plausible, taking it further a, a, a century and a half. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, Google last 5.0 or something on this. Uh, and so, yeah, it's going to take a long time, though, to make that work, I think, but it will happen. Okay, And then I've got, you know, think of Siri, you know, 15.0, okay? So uh, there's something called a PETA, you know, uh, a personal intelligent digital assistant. It's sort of like Siri, Siri and it's on your nest. And, you know, it's like a little AI, um, you know, admin, and it can talk to you. And, of course, it, it knows more and more about you so that it can become more and more personalized. And you can imagine that happening. And, pr and pretty soon, um, it's kind of hard to live without he or she, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, like I mean, you, you, you come across many PETAs in the book. They are really like... Um gosh, how would you describe them? They're so omnipotent and omnipresent that they'll become like little guardian angels for people. And But it's not giving too much of the way of the book to say in the very first few pages, Joe disconnects his and people are surprised at that. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, and, and if you get to the issue of, you know, AIs and consciousness, did he just kill something or not? <laughs> so, but I think that, you know, how invasive will we let the technology be? I mean, we already find technology overwhelms us, right? You think about how much time people spend on social media and just being, you know, on their phones and now just multiply that in the future. And then how do we deal with that as people, right? Especially when it's incremental, in its introduction, right? I mean, it's literally the, the the frog in the boiling water because it's not like all of a sudden someone dropped a fully quasi-sentient bipedal C-3PO in my, my living room tomorrow and I'm just going to be freaked out. That's just, that's just too much of a step change today. But you could imagine the steps leading all the way there to that becomes completely normal and commonplace. Yes. One of the uh, reviews from She Single Magazine mentions that this future feels eerily authentic. And yeah, that's intentional because we should think about where the limits are that we want to m make on that technology. If we just take these trends of technology and we extend them beyond to the furthest reaches, we have bizarre things happen. And that's most of science fiction. But but unfortunately, that doesn't give us a reading of what is more highly likely. And I think if we look at the highly likely, then we start to focus on what are the real issues we have to deal with. And, and I think those issues are that economic question when we have fewer jobs and lots of stuff. Um, I think it's a social justice question. Then, you know, how do we manage um, what equality is? How do we deal with our fundamental nature as humans who are competitive? you know, in a world where that doesn't need to be uh, based on economics. Um, how do we deal with, um, you know, living among these um, machines that will seem more and more conscious? But I, I, I think I think if, if ever, it's going to be really hard to make that be true. You know, so and how does that work? How do we find purpose in that world? That's fundamental. Well, I want to encourage, strongly encourage our listeners to check out Gary Benger's book, Unfettered Journey, which was published by Chilagon Press in 2020, is really one of my favorite sci-fi novels in recent memory. Gary, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much, Adam. 
that was my interview with Gary Benger. I'll say that in addition to his novel, he did publish a companion appendix, if you will, that has a more academic treatment of the philosophical issues and information around those topics. I went and got that. I'm sort of going through that, but that's slow going, right? That's a little more of uh, having to study and think, but of course, that's really where the benefits come from. So here we are at the end of a four-part series on AI. We started with Cade Metz talking about sort of the history of AI and the Jeff Hinton story and how the move to neural network modeling of training AI was really a turning point. You know, then we talked to Jeff Hawkins, uh, who invented the Palm Pilot, uh, but then went on to propose the thousand brains theory essentially a way of thinking about the cortex, the human cortex, and what we can learn from it about how to build neural networks. We talked to Jamie Mersotis about what kind of human work will remain when AI is much more uh, prolific than it is today, even though it's already making inroads in terms of our jobs. And we end up now with this sort of look-ahead uh, science fiction writer. What do you think is like the big takeaway? What have we learned? You know... The current state of AI is exciting, but still somewhat limited. We have incredible efficacy or effectiveness in what are relatively narrow iterative tasks. We don't quite have the sort of generative capability of what we could think of as human creativity, although you're making inroads in things like GPT-3 and what will ultimately be subsequent iterations of that. I'm excited. I think that the takeaways for me are, um, there's still a lot of work to do because these systems are imperfect and they can lead, we still have issues with bias and kind of garbage in, garbage out. And of course, I'm interested in the explainability uh, aspect of AI. That is, these are, can be about a, a black box. And so how can we explain why our models are generating the output that they do and there's been a lot of interesting work. I recently just listened to a lecture from DARPA about some academic strategies to try to parse at different layers of a neural network why they're generating certain, um, you know, answers or outputs uh, given the input they have, which mm -hmm. is going to be important mm -hmm. for the, you know, it's that explainability. It's really trying to understand. If we don't understand how things are working, it's going to be very difficult to improve them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's ultimately going to get us to some of these more important um uh, creative tasks, as well as trying to deal with what are ultimately going to be pretty frequent. If you, if you start to have AI infiltrating many aspects of commerce and, you know, human, both social and business life, the edge cases that we're so worried about, they're probably going to be actually, even if they're low base rate, they could actually become pretty frequent bugs and pretty annoying to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, if you think of, you know, how many billions of cars that could have an AI, you know, aspect to their self-driving capability or autonomous, and then you can go on from there. And so I think we really need to understand how these networks are working so that we can fully address in a, in a, in a dependable and reliable way how they can, you know, how, how they're going to work in some of these edge cases. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awal, Dale LaMaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. And I'm Adam Bristol. 
See you next time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.